welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. George Orwell. Well, welcome back, everybody. It is February. Um, it's Black History Month. And for the rest of this month, every episode, um, one of my guests will be an African-American of some accomplishment and talking about different issues. And this week, my guest is is author and 20 plus year, 22 years, she corrected me, um, veteran White House correspondent, April Ryan. Uh, she'll be joining me in a little bit to talk about her time in the White House, um, her, her new book called Under Fire, um, what it's like on the front lines of the Trump White House as a reporter. So um, stay tuned for that. And um, like I said, every week, I'll have a different guest from um, the African-American community talking about various things, because I think that's important, especially in the racial climate we're in today. Uh, We're going to talk about this crazy controversy in Virginia with this governor, Ralph Northam, and the discovery of an old medical school yearbook from 1984, where there's a picture of him either in blackface or a KKK outfit. He, we don't know which which one he's in because he didn't admit to which one he was in the photo. And then he apologized for it without saying which one he was. And then the next day, he had this bizarre press conference where he said, no, it wasn't me. I looked at it a little further. No, no, I don't remember. It couldn't have been me. What? <laughs> um, I, I addressed this with April also. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about this too. Um, because it's still ongoing. I mean, at the time of this podcast, Northam still has not resigned. Maybe he will, or maybe he has resigned from the time that I'm recording this to when it goes live. But as of right now, he has not resigned, which is insane. Um, but before I talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about some, a couple of other things, like the Super Bowl. Uh, everyone who knows me knows that I am a proud Jersey girl and I am a lifelong New York Giants fan. As a matter of fact, I met my husband at a New York Giants fan club party, Super Bowl party, back in 2011. It's people that live in the DC metro area who are from New York and New Jersey who are avid Giants fans. That's how we met. We are serious about the New York Giants in our household. God knew what he was doing. He sent me a Giants fan. He knew that I could never marry anyone who represented another team in the NFC East. Never. (laughs) So thank you, Jesus. He sent me a Giants fan. My husband's from Brooklyn. Thank you, God. So we get along in that area. We also share our mutual dislike for all teams in Boston. Sorry to my, my, my fans out there who are from the Boston area. I have some great friends that are from New England, but when it comes to sports, no, I'm a Yankees fan. Hate the Red Sox. I'm a Giants fan. I hate the Patriots. So the Super Bowl was something else for me to just be like, oh, again with these Patriots. Plus the Giants have been awful last five seasons. We're not used to being this terrible for so long. We are a well-respected organization. Everybody has their ups and downs, but the Giants have been terrible. Admittedly so. However, we have won two Super Bowls in the last decade. And guess who we beat? The freaking Patriots. And I love it. So 
we will forever have the title of being the Brady Slayers because we denied Tom Brady not one but two Super Bowls. So that's how I feel about that. I was not rooting for the Patriots. I was rooting for the Rams. However, I had mixed feelings about that because the Rams did not deserve to be in the Super Bowl at all. The New Orleans Saints did. They got robbed by a shitty no call on a pass interference that everybody and their mother knew was a missed blown call. And it cost New Orleans the Super Bowl, a chance to go to the Super Bowl. So, you know, the Rams, it was, it was a cursed appearance, in my opinion. They, they didn't deserve to be there. And as much as I wanted them to beat the Patriots, because I hate the Patriots, uh, it was the whole thing. The whole thing was just, a, just left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't like it. But of course, we watched the Super Bowl because we're sports fans in this household. I play fantasy league football and everything else. I mean, we're football people. Um, and I was like, well, I just want to watch the commercials, right? <sighs> Am I the only one who felt the commercials this year were terrible? They were terrible. I can remember in years past that you had multiple commercials that you remembered you quoted the next day people were talking about like oh my god did you see this like the, a couple of years ago the the snickers commercials where they had you know betty white getting tackled in a in a football um pickup game in the mud because you know you turn into betty white when you're cranky when you're you know drinking i mean when you're hungry remember those the, the snickers commercials or the bud light commercials with the what's up guys i mean like there were iconic commercials and the clydesdale commercials like what happened to that the commercials this year, I mean, there were a couple, like, I appreciated the Verizon commercial that honored our first responders, given my, you know, my, my family, my law enforcement family. I appreciated that. But like, in the IBM commercial, I think it was IBM, was it IBM or Microsoft? I forget. Where they um, highlighted uh, children with, uh, with disabilities and, and how, you know, wonderful they are and contribute to society and how inclusive we need to be. That was great. Touchy feely though, you know. Kind of not looking for that during the Super Bowl, but yeah, I at least there were good messages, and of course I I appreciated the Washington Post's um, sixty second ad highlighting the importance of journalism and journalists who put their lives on the line to bring information and inform the public. I thought that was excellent. Um, the Washington Post has adopted the saying "democracy dies in darkness" on their masthead for the last two years basically since Donald Trump took took over as president because he keeps attacking the media as the enemy of the people, which just endangers the lives of journalists, not only domestically, but overseas too. It's just ridiculous. Now, there was some criticism, interestingly, uh, at the of the Washington Post's decision to spend millions of dollars on this ad because there have recently, in the last few weeks, there's been um, hundreds and hundreds of layoffs of journalists on um, a multitude of digital platforms from BuzzFeed to Vice and Huffington Post. A lot of really good journalists have lost their jobs. So some people were critical of the Washington Post for spending, I mean, it was $5.2 million for a 30-second ad. I don't know if that was for the entire Super Bowl or just like the beginning, but around there. So you're talking, what, they spent $10 million on this? And some people were like, well, that money could have gone to hiring journalists or, you know, better health care or whatever. I mean, I guess that's a fair criticism. But, um, but the ad itself was phenomenal, and I thought it was a wonderful representation of the importance of journalism and reminding the American people that those of us in the media are not the enemy of the people. Um, so that's kind of all I have to say. Oh, oh, wait, how could I forget? 
the best commercial of the night, hands down, was the NFL 100 commercial. Oh my God, that was great. I don't know how much that cost because I felt like that commercial was like three minutes long. <laughs> but it had all the greats of football for the last, whatever, 30 years, 20 years. And, um, and uh, just Google it. It's phenomenal. That was the best um, commercial of the night. Shout out to Michael Strahan. He was in there, my buddy, and uh, Hall of Famer and Giants great. So that's really all I want to say about that. Oh, wait, no. I have to talk about the freaking halftime show. Okay. Okay. I love Maroon 5. I think they're great. I like their music. However, not for a halftime show. I'm sorry. They are not. They were not it. I know that they had some problems um, getting decent acts, I guess, for the Super Bowl because of the controversy over Colin Kaepernick and the whole thing. A lot of black artists said no in protest, I guess. It was a whole thing. But, you know, look, it's the biggest stage in the world. You have to be a performer. You really do to capture the attention of people at the halftime for the halftime show. The last couple of years, we have had unbelievable performers from Bruno Mars to Lady Gaga, like parachuting in on a zip line or whatever the hell she did. I mean, she's amazing. I love her anyway, but she is a, an amazing performer. She's uber talented and puts on a show. And that's what she did. Bruno Mars and Beyonce, they put on a show. Even Justin Timberlake, at least, you know, he dances and he's got some things going on. He's a performer. Maroon 5? Come on. Adam Levine taking his shirt off at the end? Come on. My mom was watching the game with us and she was like, oh my God, is that really necessary? (laughs) You know, he's not a bad guy. He doesn't have a horrible body, but nobody wants to see that. This is the Super Bowl. My husband literally fell asleep. He was like, wake me up when this shit is over. (laughs) I tweeted out a picture of it. He was out. He was out. Besides the game being boring as hell, the halftime show was boring. I would have liked to see to have seen an outcast reunion. If you're going to bring, bring big boy out, where's Andre 3000? Like what happened there? I don't know. Travis Scott. I don't know one song of his. I have no clue. I'm not. I can't stand this mumble rap crap that's out there now. I'm an old school 90s hip hop girl from the New York metro area. I actually appreciate lyricists and lyrics that you can understand. Not the shit that's out there now. So I don't get it. Millennials seem to like that crap. I can't do it. So the only reason why I know Travis Scott is because he's Kylie Jenner's baby daddy. And I'm like, why? Horrible, horrible. The whole thing was horrible. The SpongeBob thing was weird. It was just horrible. So two thumbs down for me for the halftime show. Sorry. Did, I wasn't feeling it at all. Um, let's see who they get next year. Let's hope they don't make that mistake again. You got to have a performer. You just, you just do. So that, that's my two cents about the Super Bowl. (laughs) Sorry to all my New England friends. I can't do it. I can't. (laughs) Uh, what else? What else? Oh, so, you know, the, uh, let's talk now a little bit about the, the Northam thing, the governor of Virginia controversy that's ongoing. So it is Black History Month, and I've also, I'm I'm a little more racially in tune this time of year, just because of your coming out of the Martin Luther King celebrations and then into Black History Month. And um, I've had the privilege this year of giving uh, keynote speeches for Martin Luther King celebrations. So I've been studying a bit more and kind of refreshing my history on, on these things. So I'm a little more sensitive than I usually am 
to these kinds of things. And my mom, you know, for those who don't know, I am biracial. My mom is German Italian and uh, my father is actually from Guatemala. Um, Somebody, I'm sure there was African in there somewhere, because obviously I have color in my skin, but my father was an Afro-Latino, I guess, fair to say. And so I didn't grow up with a family with the heritage of slavery in America. My great-grandparents came through Ellis Island on my mom's side in the 20s, and my father and his family came here basically as uh, asylum seekers escaping the revolution in Guatemala in the 1950s. So I have a, a, a different uh, racial background in a, you know, than a lot of other uh, black folks in this country. So I just have a different perspective. And, but yet, that doesn't mean that I'm immune to the atrocities and injustices of what happened to African-Americans in this country. So my mom and I, on Friday, we went to go see the movie, the Oscar-nominated movie, Green Book. Phenomenal. I had not heard of this movie until the Golden Globes. Because I was like, who is this movie that's winning over A Star is Born? Because <laughs> I've been rooting for Lady Gaga because I thought she was phenomenal and it was actually a good movie. So I was like, what is this movie that's beating my Star is Born movie? So um, I paid more attention. I think that Mahershala Ali is a phenomenal actor. And he put on another for sure Oscar-worthy performance. And so did Viggo Mortensen. It was great. So the movie Green Book, it's about this acclaimed concert pianist, black guy named Dr. Don Shirley. And it chronicles his tour of the Jim Crow South in the early 60s, playing as a concert pianist, uh, classically music trained for these rich Southern white folks. And he needs to hire a driver slash bodyguard to accompany him on this tour because it's the Jim Crow South. So that's like, you know, coloreds can't drink at the water fountains and they have to stay in separate hotels and all of that awfulness of that time. And Green Book refers to this travel guide that was put out for black folks who traveled in the South to tell them where they could and couldn't stay, where they could and couldn't eat as a way to protect them from potential lynch mobs and and the ire of the racists in the south um you know some of our grandparents may know about this even some of our parents i mean my mom was born my mom's 64 so she was alive at this time she was a kid still but um and and i it was the story is just it's based on a true story by the way and it's about when uh, Don Shirley hires his driver, it's this really tough Italian neighborhood Italian guy from from the Bronx, and how they basically it's a, it chronicles their the uh, the trip and their relationship, um, um, and you know without giving it away, but because you just need to watch it. But Viggo Mortensen nailed his role, um. And yeah, he, he, it was an Oscar worthy performance also. So I hope he wins it. Um, the movie was also directed or no written, written by, um, Tony Vellalonga. That was his name, his son, Nick. So that's really cool. And it was executive produced by Octavia Spencer. So I like to see successful black actors in Hollywood financing really quality black movies. It was, it was great. So, 
Um, but it really highlighted just the just the terrible racism and discrimination and injustice in the South, where it just there were so many cringeworthy moments where you're like, God, this happened in America. And I, you know, I get it. I, I get why so many people are are have no tolerance for the crap that we see going on today. Because we don't need to go backwards to that time period at all. So when Donald Trump says racially insensitive, flat out racial things or lets people get away with it or this emergence of white supremacists coming back up thinking they're emboldened by this guy in the White House. We don't have time for that as a country. And April Ryan and I talk about this in our in our interview coming up. But um, Green Book, go see it. Fantastic. Which leads me to this story with this governor. So just a little refresher. If you don't know already, the governor of Virginia, Ralph, Ralph Northam. On Friday, February 1st, this conservative website, which is of shady repute, in my opinion, because it's run by people who backed Corey Stewart, who was the racist, racial, neo-confederate jerk off that ran for a bunch of statewide offices in Virginia Um, He came within one percentage point of being the Republican gubernatorial candidate in 2017 to run against Northam, actually. Uh, Ed Gillespie ended up winning. But he, Corey Stewart came within one percentage point. This guy is like, he used to say he was Trump before Trump. I mean, this guy is a fucking asshole. So, um, and then he ran for Senate this last election in 2018. And actually, he, he was the Republican freaking candidate for Senate despicable despicable when I moved back to the Virginia area from the DC area into Virginia from Jersey I switched my residency to make sure that I could do it in time to vote so I could vote against Corey Stewart because no so the people who discovered this yearbook photograph of Ralph Northam or, or who published it they were backed by him but it was legit though this was legit because they showed the the medical school yearbook with the governor at the time, he was 25 years old, dressed in either black blackface or in a KKK outfit, full outfit, the hood and everything. Obviously, this is horrifying and completely unacceptable. I don't give a shit if it was 35 years ago. Don't care. You were an adult. This isn't the Brett Kavanaugh situation where we're talking about high school. Okay? No. So stop making that equivalence to people who are like, oh, Brett Kavanaugh, how come up? No. This is different. This guy was 25 years old. He had gone to VMI, Virginia Military Institute, graduated undergrad there, and then was went to, I think it was uh, Eastern something, Eastern Virginia Medical School. He was 25, grown ass man. First, the way things unfolded were just so strange. Like he said, after this blew up, everybody starts reporting it on Friday. And he comes out and he makes this weird statement where he acknowledges the photograph, but doesn't say which one of the people he is. That was weird. So a lot of us were like, I was on CNN that that night talking about this. And I'm like, not only is that terrible and he needs to go, but where the hell were the editors of the yearbook? Like, how did this picture even get get published? Don't where were these people? So apparently this was a culture that was accepted then because it got past the yearbook committee and it got published for God's sakes. Well, come to find out, as more reporting on this uncovered things, there were other people in this yearbook who had that were pictured in blackface. 
in different, not just Ralph Northam's page, but other people's pages. So apparently this was just, you know, not a big deal in 1984, not 1964, not 1934, 1984, 20 years after the Civil Rights Act. I mean, come on, people. No excuse for that. Then on Saturday, he conducted the strangest, one of the strangest um, press conferences I'd seen in quite some time taking Trump out of it because almost every press conference he gives is weird. But this was, this was supposed to be, we thought when he called this, that this was going to be his resignation press conference. Now, mind you, the Lieutenant governor of Virginia, his name is Justin Fairfax. He's black. He's also the descendant of slaves. So he has a great story. He's an up and comer, very well liked. So you have a very interesting dynamic here. What, what do we do? You know, I mean, he can't come out and be like, the guy's got to go because it looks self-serving because he would be the next in line. He'd become governor. So but one prominent Democrat after another came out because Ralph Northam is a Democrat. He came out and said uh, the prominent Democrats, one after the other presidential candidates, you know, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand. They all came out and said, sorry, buddy, you got to go. The former governor who was who he was the lieutenant governor for, Terry McAuliffe, he said, uh, sorry, buddy, but you got to go. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the two senators from Virginia, they were a little parsed. They parsed their words a little bit. They came just short of saying you got to go, but basically like you're ineffective now as a leader. So you need to do the right thing. The black Congressional Black Caucus um, in Congress, they said you got to go. The NAACP said you've got to go. The black legislators in Virginia were like, sorry, Ralph, but we just can't trust you anymore. You need to go. So the so we thought the press conference on Saturday it was going to be him saying, OK, for the best interest of Virginia, given the painful racial history of Virginia, I'm going to do the right thing and step down so that the state can heal from this awfulness. But no, that's not what he did. He came out and said, well, you know, um, I don't I, I didn't have a chance to look very clearly and very closely at those photo at the photo when I made that statement yesterday. But I've talked to people and no one seems to remember this. I don't remember this. So that couldn't be me in that photo. What? It wasn't him. Terrible. This is crisis management. What not to do in crisis management 101. You don't admit to it, then come out and say, oh, no, it wasn't me. That's horrible. You've lost all credibility, in my opinion, at that point. Um, he also tried to say that he did dress up in blackface at one other point in his life for a dance contest in San Antonio because he, he dressed up as Michael Jackson and that he won this dance contest because he learned to moonwalk like Michael Jackson. And then a reporter shouted out, can you still do the moonwalk? And he actually started to look around to see if he had room behind the podium in the governor's mansion in the middle of this press conference to see if he could moonwalk. His wife, bless her heart, intervened and said, not inappropriate circumstances. You think? I mean, buddy, you're just not getting it. Yeah, he needed to moonwalk his ass right out of the governor's mansion. But he didn't. He decided that he is still going to remain governor of Virginia. This is nuts. And he just clearly did not get the significance of blackface and the horror of a KKK outfit. And I mean, how could you be, be that oblivious? Oblivious. 
And the pain that that has caused, I mean, the state of Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy. The state of Virginia still celebrates Robert E. Lee Day. I didn't even know this. I'd lived in Virginia for years and I had no freaking idea that Virginia celebrated Robert E. Lee Day until this year. Why? Because my husband went to DMV to get his plates changed over for his car. And it was a Friday, the Friday before Martin Luther King Day. And he's, he was all happy because he saw no cars in the parking lot. He thought, oh, I'm here early. That means there's no line at the DMV. No, it was because the damn DMV was closed because they were celebrating the state holiday of Robert E. Lee Day. What? I had no idea. Multiple states still do this. Mississippi. Mississippi, in some places, celebrates Robert E. Lee Day on the same day as Martin Luther King. What an insult. So, yeah. Virginia has a very sordid racial history. Lynchings, miscegenation laws, anti-miscegenation laws, which is you can't marry biracial marriages. Interracial marriage was illegal in the state of Virginia until 1967. If you have not seen the movie Loving, it is about the case, Loving versus Virginia. It was a white man, black woman, married in uh, Washington, D.C. because it was illegal to be married in Virginia. They came back to live in Virginia. They were jailed for being husband and wife, living and sleeping in the same house and same bed because it was against the law. I did not know this until I saw the movie and started researching the case, because obviously as a mixed race person, it interested me, the history of this. Do you know that 16 states in the United States did not permit interracial marriage until the Supreme Court overturned the Loving case in 1967? That's insane. Yeah, not that long ago. So, you know, Virginia has a very sordid history here. And for this governor, for Ralph Northam, not to understand this and to still hold on to power. I mean, like I said, maybe by now, by the time you hear this, he'll, he'll, he'll have resigned, but it shouldn't have taken this long. What a mess. And it just goes to show you that we've got a long way to go. We do. And this kind of ingrained racism, generational racism, um, isn't Democrat, isn't Republican. It spans through across political lines, unfortunately. So, We'll see. Justin Fairfax, you know, he might be practicing his uh, oath of office. Now, there's a hit piece out about him um, of an old sexual assault allegation from 2004, clearly a smear um, piece from the same conservative questionable website I told you about. Um, It wasn't substantiated. And the Washington Post didn't run it because they couldn't corroborate the story. So that was like, a woman came forward after the election in 2017 to say that she'd been sexually assaulted by Justin Fairfax in 2004 at the Democrat national convention. Like I said, other news outlets, reputable news outlets said they didn't have enough to go on to run it. So they didn't. So why is it coming back up now? I don't know. I don't know. Well, to be continued on that. And we'll be talking to um, April Ryan about that and other things shortly. A couple other things before we talk to April um, <laughs> did anybody else see the story about Trump, Trump's personal schedule being leaked? And it shows for the last three months, 60% of his time on his schedule was executive time. Executive time, we heard about this, I don't know, like a year ago, 
because normally the president has a public schedule that we all get to see. So we know what the president is doing and he has a private schedule. Well, the public schedule has been very spotty. A lot of people have questions like, where is he? What's he doing? Because we all know that Trump is lazy and incompetent as hell. So reporters were kind of digging into that. And usually the visitors logs to the White House, that's publicly available. So we know who's coming in and out of the people's house. We had some issues with, um, you know, some folks going to see President Obama and, you know, even George W. Bush. People are like, you know, our lobbyists, who's going in and out. Um, but the, but all, every administration has always made the visitor logs public and available. Sometimes you got to, you have to do more digging to get it, but the point is you can get it. This administration, they are so non-transparent. It's ridiculous. So this whole idea of executive time came up because we're like, people are like, what the hell is that? Well, the bottom line is executive time is when the president is fucking around in the white house, not doing anything, but tweeting and obsessing over the news. That's what it is. He's sitting around. No meetings, no briefings. It's his executive time. <laughs> this guy who had the audacity to question whether Hillary Clinton had the stamina to be president is spending 60% of his time fucking around in the White House on Twitter and, you know, watching Fox News obsessively and reading the papers and, and I don't know, working on his quaff. I don't know, you know, with his with the, with that hair and the spray tan. I don't know. But you've got to be kidding me. I can remember when Republicans went after Barack Obama because he didn't start his day until like, I don't know, it was like nine or nine thirty, something like that, where George Bush had Intel briefings at 6 a.m. He was an early riser. He'd like run five miles and and then he'd have an Intel briefing at 630 in the morning or something. So he was he, he also went to bed at like nine o'clock and he didn't drink. But I remember Republicans were like, oh, Barack Obama, he's not, you know, he's lazy, too. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, OK. But compared to this, this guy, come on, 60% of the time, there were some days where he spent, there were seven hours of the working day carved out as executive time. Shout out to Axios, they broke the story. Um, Some legitimate criticism about whoever leaked it, because it had to be somebody in the inner circle that had access to a schedule. Never a good thing, really, you know when White House staffers are doing this. But I guess the flip side of that is, you know, these people are doing doing a service at least to the American people to be like, look, they're it's kind of like the anonymous thing. When that op-ed came out a couple months ago saying that there are people inside the White House that are basically staying there to protect this country from Trump. That's a scary prospect, but a reality because the guy's freaking a menace. So if anyone who watches the show our cartoon president on Showtime. Oh my God. It's a Stephen Colbert creation. It's an animated version of the Trump presidency. And it is one of the funniest, most well-written things, parodies out there today. Oh, uh, our cartoon president. Everything that we say is like, what is happening with this presidency? They capture in a cartoon parody. It is fantastic. (laughs) We need some levity. You need some levity. So one of my favorite things to watch. I binged watched a bunch of episodes on my way to Fargo when I was freezing my ass off. Yeah, I am. I'm so on that flight. I was watching. They're like 25 minutes long each episode. It's, oh my God. I can't wait for the next season. <laughs> so much material. But anyway, yeah, executive time. Um, Something else. Oh, the so last week, Trump, speaking of being a national menace, 
So our intelligence chiefs, head of the DNI, the director of national intelligence, head of the CIA, so you had Dan Coates, Gina Haspel, and others were on Capitol Hill testifying basically about kind of um, a state of play, where we're at with our foreign adversaries, our allies, with what's going on. Because Trump has been making a bunch of irresponsible, inaccurate, no surprise, statements about Russia and North Korea and other things going on. And this whole thing with Syria, you know, we're going to pull out and you know, it cost us our defense secretary. Um, Mattis finally said I had enough and he resigned in protest. Trump, by the way, in a CBS interview over the weekend claims that he forced Mattis to resign. That's not true. James Mattis said, I'm done. And he and he resigned. So, you know, Trump can try to spin it however he wants, but that's not how it went down. Um, and they basically contradicted everything Trump said about the state, the state of things going on in the world. Now, who are you going to believe? Our intelligence chiefs who have been doing this for 30, 20, 30, 40 years, or Donald Trump who makes things up in his head, who doesn't know shit from Shinola about anything. Um, well, Donald Trump disparaged his own Intel chiefs, people that he installed. These are not holdovers from Obama's administration anymore. He can't blame that. These are people he nominated for these positions. He went out and, and disparaged them on Twitter. Now, the testimony was pub, was public. It was on television. We could hear and see with our own ears and eyes what these people had to say. Donald Trump actually tried to tell people that it was the media who misrepresented what they said. No, they didn't contradict him. No, 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 no. What? That's not what happened at all. And he also tweeted that they need to go back to school. They're naive. They don't know what they're talking about, but he does. This is just crazy. And multiple stories started coming out. There was a story in Time Magazine, um, well, Time.com, about how the intel community is very frustrated with Trump because he just disregards the facts that are in front of him about what's happening if it doesn't align with his personal belief. That is no way to run a country. I mean, I, if he believes it's a certain, this is what I believe, that's it. It doesn't matter whether it's based in reality or not. That is incredibly dangerous. It's a threat to our national security because what is he basing his decision-making on? So that was that. Um, I'll, I'll be curious to see how long Dan Coates um, and others last. I mean, well, thank God we have competent people there. So what do you do? Do you resign in protest or you just stay and take it because you're like, well, who the hell's going to replace me? And Trump already has multiple acting secretaries in the cabinet because so many people have either quit or had to, had to quit or he forced to quit. And he bragged and said, I like acting secretaries because they're easier to deal with. <laughs> really? Yeah, because then they're beholden, their job is beholden to him. And that's completely against what our founding fathers wanted. Alexander Hamilton talked about how we don't want them to be to feel beholden to the president like that that's why they have to go through senate confirmation which leads me to the state of the union by the time this podcast airs the state of the union will have happened and um i when i worked in capitol hill i have suffered through seven state of the unions in a row 
because I was a communications director on Capitol Hill and it's a big deal every year. Now the pomp and circumstance around that is kind of cool, you know, and um, the, everyone in the seat of government is there, you know, secret service is hanging around and, um, you know, you have, you're like on lockdown. It's pretty cool from that if you're a nerd, political nerd. But the, the speeches are all usually underwhelming. Most Americans don't really care about the State of the Union. I hate to say that, but it's true. But it's on in prime time, so people kind of watch it for about 10 minutes and they can't make it through the whole thing. But us political people, we parse the State of the Union for every applause line and words and policies and who's who's sitting in the guest box. And so it's like it's a whole thing. But it, a lot of folks, and they have the response you know, they always have a, the, the the opposite party responds. The response is they need to get rid of that. They're never good. Never, never. They're never good. But this year it's going to be um, Stacey Abrams. She is the black female who lost the governor's race in Georgia. And she's a rising star. So she's, I think, the first non-elected official to give a response um, so the Democrats are trying to mix it up with some fresh faces. That's fine. But it's still, it's always a bore. And, you know, but but with Donald Trump, you just never know what the hell he's going to say or do. Are we going to get teleprompter Trump or are we going to get Twitter Trump? Uh, who knows? But um, the State of the Union, I think, is going to be fascinating this time only because the power dynamic has shifted with Nancy Pelosi now being Speaker of the House. This is the first time Trump has had to deliver this speech without the Republicans controlling both houses of Congress. So that image with Nancy Pelosi over his shoulder sitting there in the House chamber after she basically schooled him up and down the Capitol um, with the shutdown and everything else and we're rescinding the State of the Union offer until the government shut, well, government was open. I mean, she's just been kicking Trump's ass up and down. So I'm just gonna be curious to see what the what those dynamics are. Um, for the State of the Union. And I'm also going to be curious to see if he alludes to this national emergency declaration. Now, this he's been floating this idea about declaring a national emergency to get his damn wall built. This was something new. We really hadn't heard about this until the shutdown. And it's being pushed by some people inside the White House, including his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who seems to believe this is a viable option. What is a national emergency? Well, the government has been reopened, but only for three weeks. So if the Congress cannot reach a deal on funding border security and getting whatever kind of physical barrier structure Trump decides this week he wants, if they can't agree and get a bill passed by February 15th, then the government's supposed to shut down again. No one wants this. No one wants this. It was a disaster last time. It was unnecessary. And our federal workers should not be held hostage because of this, because of a political squabble. It's ridiculous. So Trump has left the option in his little back pocket of, well, I can declare a national emergency. And technically, he does have the power to do that thanks to the National Emergencies Act, which is a post-Watergate bill from the 70s that gives him the power to do this. But it's a bit more complicated than that, because as I was researching this, I discovered that he can't just go ahead and declare this national emergency and then decide 
you know, have no, there's no recourse for Congress because a lot of people, including Republicans, they don't want that either because that opens up the door for circumventing Congress on a lot of things. What if the next president decides that gun violence is a national emergency and declares that? And next thing you know, we've got gun confiscation going on. I mean, there are, there's a, a Pandora's box of things that could happen here if you start opening this door and abusing this national emergencies power. Well, when I started researching this, I found out that Nancy Pelosi, a Speaker of the House, can potentially force Senate Republicans to have to vote on this. Now, Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, a bunch of the Senate leadership, they've been trying to talk Trump out of doing this because they know that it's bullshit, that it's not a legitimate or valid use of the National Emergencies Act. What he would do is he would declare this national emergency and then redirect funds from military construction to build this wall. And the Army Corps of Engineers has already been instructed to figure out a way of how they can do this to be in compliance with the statute. So this has been in the works. They've been trying to figure out how to do this. Without a doubt, there will be court challenges and everything else to this. So, but Trump could do it just to show his people, look, look what I did. I declare a national emergency and then blame the courts for why the wall's not getting built. So he always has the foil because he doesn't really want to solve the problem. Well, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, under this statute, the same law, she can, they can um, f- vote on resolutions whether to support it or not, the national emergency. And the law says that if one chamber votes on it, the other chamber has to vote on it also within 36 days. So if Nancy Pelosi says, we're going to vote on a resolution to approve or, dis- or not this national emergency, clearly the House of Representatives, which is run by Democrats, They'll vote against it. Then it goes to the Senate and that forces Senate Republicans to go on record opposing the president if they do or voting for something they know is a dangerous precedent and bullshit because there's no national damn emergency on the border. Very dicey. And this could potentially split the caucus, the Republicans in the Senate, if this vote ever happened. So Nancy, it's Nancy Pelosi's prerogative if she wants to trigger this. And I think it would be politically very smart of her to do it because it would put Republicans in the Senate in a really tight spot. And I know that the Republicans in the Senate, the Senate Republicans have no appetite for this because they know, they know. And they're six-year term. So some of them will outlast Donald Trump, assuming he's only one term. So they're looking at their own political futures. Mm-hmm. So... Stay tuned to that. Let's see what happens. Let's hope that this guy does not declare a national emergency and we don't ever have to go there. But if he does, it doesn't end there. (laughs) It doesn't end there. It's going to create a political headache for Republicans more than they already have with this Trump. But that could be the beginning of the fracturing of of the Senate support, Mitch McConnell, everybody of Trump. I think it's going to be interesting. So you learned a little bit about the National Emergencies Act and how it works. So you can pay attention to that. So you're more informed. <laughs> um, one last thing really quick before we go to April Ryan, just a little um, Russia tidbit. So Donald Trump has uh, talked about how he, you know, um, is the king of debt and how he didn't need financing, though, for his Trump Turnberry golf course in Scotland. You may remember that during the election, in the middle of the election in 2016, Trump jets off to Scotland to open up this new golf course there 
And everyone was like, what? You're in the middle of an election. What the hell are you doing still running your business at the same time? Like, turn that shit over to your kids and focus on the election. Well, he didn't. And it caused the whole thing. So he goes over there, he opens this, and people are asking, well, how, how did you pay for this? And Trump, we don't know because we have never seen his taxes. So Donald Trump has gone bankrupt at least four times. And in the 90s, when he lost everything and lost his casinos, basically he was persona non grata on Wall Street. No American banks, banking institutions would lend to him anymore because he was too risky and he was terrible, a terrible businessman. And they said, we're done. We're not lending you hundreds of millions of dollars anymore because you screwed us over and we're not doing it. So in order for Trump to get back on his feet, he basically had to seek foreign banking um, lenders. And Deutsche Bank stepped up to the plate. Deutsche Bank is a German-run bank. It is a huge bank. And it's also notorious for money laundering with Russians. Yes. They've been fined billions and billions of dollars for the shady business banking practices. And a lot of it has to do with Russians. So no surprise that this was the banking institution that wanted, they wanted to get into the American market. So they decided to bring on Donald Trump as a client. So they've had a relationship with Donald Trump for almost 20 years, lending him hundreds of millions of dollars for different projects. Well, it just came out that it looks as though the Trump organization, despite saying that they did not need any financing for this uh, golf, this golf property, Turnberry, they actually did seek a loan from Deutsche Bank and they were rejected. Why is that significant? Well, as the American people, we did not know that Trump was doing all of this. So he was doing all of this during the election, including pursuing a Moscow, Trump Tower in Moscow. He was not forthright with the American people that all of this shit was going on. And if he's seeking foreign financing for his projects, who, especially a bank that's known for shady banking with Russian, you know, oligarchs and everything else. The American people should have known that. Now, why did they reject him? Well, and it went all the way up to the headquarters in Frankfurt because initially the private banking division said, yes, well, we're already in business with him. Well, you know, what's the big deal? And other executives said, you know what? Screw that. It's too risky. This campaign he's running for president is too divisive. What if he wins and then defaults on this and we're screwed out of the hundreds of millions of dollars we lent him again. We're not doing it. And it could hurt the reputation of the bank. <laughs> Believe me, Deutsche Bank's reputation is already pretty shitty. But the, if they were worried about Donald Trump selling their, their reputation, you know it was bad. And it was initially approved. And then when it went to the headquarters in Frankfurt, the higher-ups vetoed it. They said, no, no way. We're not doing it. No. So even Deutsche Bank was like, we're not doing business with Donald Trump. <laughs> anymore not 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 now no but Trump basically misrepresented that among many other things you know it never ends with this guy never ends well now it's time to bring in my guest for this week and it is the wonderful and lovely April Ryan who is a 22-year veteran correspondent for the White House um, for Urban Radio Networks, and um, she's here with me to, to chat it up about what's going on on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Welcome, April. 
This month on Honestly Speaking with Tara, it is Black History Month, and I want to make sure that I highlight not only different historical figures in black history, incorporating that into my podcast, but I also want to to feature kick-ass black women and friends of mine who are professionals doing amazing work. And one of those people is my colleague at CNN, uh, April Ryan, who is joining me on Honestly Speaking today. And most of you may know April as one of the fiercest White House correspondents during the press briefings. It's either Jim Acosta or April Ryan shaking it up during the during those press briefings. She's been a I correspondent. Don't shake it up. Yes, you do. You've been a correspondent for 20 years covering the White House. And I'm so happy to have you on Honestly Speaking today. Welcome, April. Thank you. I don't shake it up. And it's been 22 years. Girl, give me my two years. <laughs> 22 years. And, yes. because, and those last two years have been with this Trump administration, Woo! which I'm sure it probably felt like 10. So I, I, I my bad for, for not having those two years. I have, I have aged tremendously. <laughs> we all have. Years, yes. Um, well, I, I have to start off with this controversy going on in the state of Virginia with the governor, Ralph, Ralph Northam. He's a Democrat. He won last year. This is his first term. And um, over the weekend, a photograph of him in his medical school yearbook when he was 25 years old was published that showed pictures of either him in blackface or or in a KKK outfit for Halloween or something. And well, when he said, it wasn't me. Right. It wasn't me. Right. At yeah. first, that was his response. You and I were on mm-hmm. air together on Don Lemon's show on Friday evening when this broke. And all and of us, were, right, we're like, <laughs> what is happening? Um, mm-hmm. By the time this podcast airs, I am assuming that Northam will have resigned. But he's been reluctant to do that. Um, talk a little bit about what your reaction was when you first saw the story and kind of what we've been watching with it, with the way he's handled this has been pretty remarkable. Well, Tara, he, uh, the Virginia governor, is along the line of a lot of despicable people. Um, and I call him despicable. Um, and I said that strategically. Um, you know, it's one... And, and I'm going to get into why I said he's despicable. Um, he's along the lines of a lot of people like Steve King. And if you want to even include our president sometimes, um, you can. Um, with this race stuff, you know, um, this is not a joke. In 2019, people matter, people of all walks of life. Um, 25 years old, you know better. You really know better. Right. Um, these yearbooks and this beer stuff, it's getting a lot of people in trouble. Um, it's despicable. It was despicable behavior. And I had to go back and, 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 and figure out how my yearbook was put together. Um, you know, he was in 84. I was putting my yearbook, my high school yearbook together in 84 to graduate in 85. We had to approve. We had to submit pictures. We had to approve it. And then there was a panel of people uh, who dealt with the yearbook who approved things. And they told us, you know, what not to put in. You know, certain things won't make it. You know, it has to be above board. That clearly wasn't above board. Maybe that was the culture for that medical school. Maybe that was the culture even for that his college. Because in college, we were on Don when I heard him, uh, Don say about, we were Don Lemon, when Don Lemon talked about that yearbook where he his nickname was Cool Man. I and know. I screamed. I, I was too. like, it doesn't get any worse. Me too. You know, I'm like, I was like, What? 
So here's the bottom line. And he has yet to explain that, by the way. He he, he, he stumbled over that explanation, just said that he regretted right. the nickname. But obviously they got that from somewhere. Okay, Coon Man, somewhere. for goodness sakes. And it was in that yearbook. You have that yearbook, and then you have the next yearbook that has this, this blackface and uh, this blackface and uh, the Klan's outfit, get up or whatever you want to call it. And then so at the press conference, this is what made matters worse. Okay, so Friday he says, okay, I was one of them. But then Saturday he claims he never told which one. Right. And Saturday he apologized for it Friday, but I was one of them, never told which one. Then Saturday, whoever told him to get up and say it wasn't me. You know, it sounds like Shaggy from that old song. <laughs> wasn't me. I'm like, oh, my God. And I mean, he thinks we are stupid. I know. He, I mean, he's insulting our intelligence. And then his wife, I felt so sorry for his wife. Did you see how she was looking at him? Yes. He wanted to do the moonwalk. He had no understanding of the severity and the seriousness of this. He was getting ready to do the moonwalk. He said it's not, a, it's not appropriate. So let me so, just explain that to people who may not have seen that press conference. Oh so this God, governor, the worst thing. When, he, when he first on Friday came out with this statement saying, Saying he apologized for the photograph, but never acknowledged which person he was, the blackface or the KKK guy, which we thought was strange at the time. Then the next right. day on Saturday, um, it, now, it was it got even stranger because he had this press conference from the governor's mansion in Richmond where he explained that, well, it wasn't him after he looked closer at the picture and thought about it and was like, that couldn't have been me and said he didn't remember, but he did use blackface in the past to dress up as Michael Jackson for a dance contest. So he said, and he said that he used some kind of shoe polish, but only put a little bit because it's really hard to get off your face. To take off. If anybody's ever used shoe polish, you know it's hard to get off the skin. I'm like, oh, really? Right. I was like, that's news to me because I've never used shoe polish. I don't know how many people have done that on their skin unless it's to put on blackface. But anyway, so while he was talking about this, he actually, a reporter asked him, can you still do the moonwalk today? Because he said he won the dance contest because he could do the moonwalk. And he and started to look. the only reason why he acknowledged that is because someone probably has right, a picture of him That's right. in blackface trying to be Michael Jackson. Now think about Michael Jackson in 1984. <laughs> he did not have to put on makeup for Michael Jackson. No. He did not. He did not. All he needed to do was put on a jerry curl and that glove. People would have known. Yep. That's all he had to do. That's right. And some high water pants. That's right. And some comfortable <laughs> old man shoes. That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do. So I don't even want to go down that road. It's I like, know, I know, right? <laughs> you know, Kelly 1984, so Michael absurd. Jackson, yeah. That whole thing was just, it was so absurd. And then he actually looked around to see if there was room by the podium to moonwalk. And his wife said off camera, but Thank you could God hear her. She was like, inappropriate circumstances. And then he kind of like nervously, uncomfortably laughed. Like, this was not a joke. This was not a joke. The state of Virginia, and you, and you know this, April. I mean, you grew up in Baltimore. And I'm from Jersey, so it's a little bit of a different experience for me because the the the, the, the kind of the racism and the Jim Crow You're aspects North of the South, South, yeah, it was yeah. different. But you grew up in proximity to the state of Virginia. I mean, Maryland's below the Mason Dixon line too. The racial history of Virginia mm-hmm. is terrible with lynchings yeah. with um mm-hmm. you know the kkk with the, the racial oppression in the state of virginia i mean it was the capital of the confederacy this is and you, unacceptable and you still have charlottesville i was at uva last week and you still have university of virginia in charlottesville you, those people are still reeling from what happened and then to have this picture post they just had kkk in their full garb walking in the summertime in that she, not, I'm not talking about the ones with the tiki torches and trying to scare people. Another at, at incident? Those authors. 
Yeah, they had. They said. They said. Uh, in, it was on the June and July of last year. They had the KKK walking through. Oh my and then God. you're going to have the governor with this picture. He needs to step down. Not only that, he even. I mean, just for this. If we. Oh God, I can't even give it out. He even. You know, when the, the the Charlottesville incident happened, he was talking about, well, let's move the the statues, the Confederate statues, which the which the, the all of the Charlottesville incident riots stemmed from. Let's move them to a museum. Let's not get rid of them. So it makes you wonder. And see, and people, if you wonder why this means something, and like even with Steve King, and he needs to step down. He he needs to be gone a long time ago. Yeah. It makes you wonder when anything comes up, are they earnest? Will there be a bias, a racial bias, or any kind of bias when they govern, when they rule, when they when they pass a law? And you can, we know now. When you know, when you know better, you do better. So we know now. And you, you, anything he does now, it will be viewed in the prism of is this racial? And with that over his head, he cannot govern, and we cannot trust as people. I am not in the state of Virginia, but. I, as a journalist, as a human, I'm telling you from a journalistic standpoint, from what I know of what the situation is, but then from a human standpoint, as a black woman, there is no time for that right. in 2019. That's right. Especially when you have this plethora of diversity in this presidential contest on the Democratic side. And it's not because of Barack Obama. It's because it is the it is the counter to Donald Trump, and it's the counter to Roy Moore. It's the counter to all of that that racist past. And and Tara, if you think about it, and this is real talk, as black people in this country, we've been here now for four hundred years this year, four hundred years from slavery. Okay, mm-hmm. but only in the last fifty plus years, like 50, 51, 52, 53 years, have we started receiving rights and being fully franchised in this nation. I'm only 51 years old. So there are older people who remember Jim Crow. There are older people here who remember the civil rights era. Only in the last 50 years, and for him to, 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 to try to do the moonwalk in that press conference, to Great. think it's okay, he yep. doesn't get it. No. He does not get it. No, he doesn't get it. Yeah, whether you were dressed up in blackface or whether you were dressed up in that KKK card, it's no time for that. And you know what else he said during that press conference, which also demonstrated he still didn't get it even in the present times, was when he <laughs> he also said that he was when he was campaigning, he had a black staffer with him who explained yes, how hurtful explain, blackface yes. was, and he and was like, it was like some kind out. of revelation about that. I was like, you needed a campaign staffer in 2017 to explain this to you. I'm assuming it was during the election because he said when they were traveling mm-hmm. around the state. But still, mm-hmm. I mean, for God's sakes, um, let me ask and you. Explain to me, Coon Man. Explain yes. to me. I don't care. If, I don't care if your friends did call you that. You should not put it in your book. Coon Man is a, de- a direct reference, a derogatory reference to a people um, that are black. It's a, it's been a derogatory reference for hundreds of That's years. That's right. And right. so, you know, he needs to go. It's just, it's, it's, there's no time for that in 2019. And then we're dealing with it from the highest office in the land, and we're dealing with it in con- – we're dealing with it, and it should not be in 2019. We are going back for all the strides that have been made. We cannot allow this ignorance, this 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 – and it's, it's deadly because look what happened in Charlottesville. Well, that's you true. cannot allow this to stand in 2019 and think we're going to be okay 
Well, it looks like Democrats, because this is something I think that sent shockwaves, not just because of how despicable the photo is and how and, and Northam's response to it. But also, I think a lot of people aren't used to this coming from a Democrat. You know, Republicans have kind of had a monopoly on this kind of racial BS for quite some time no, now. Every, but now it shows you. Yeah, it shows you that this is that this yeah. kind of crap is um, not, doesn't ha- have to be Democrat or Republican. It's still infected a lot of yeah. the, the, the southern part of this country. It's all over. It's actually all over. But it's. Yeah, let me, um, yeah, let me clarify when I say it's everyone. Yeah. It is any party. It is anywhere USA. It is everywhere. It's yes. pervasive. I mean, I'm not saying everyone is racist. But I'm just saying it's everywhere. Right. It is not. It, 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 there's no one is immune. There are no boundaries. Right. There's right. no boundaries. That's right. There are no boundaries. Let me ask you this. Um, the, the Washington Post wrote something interesting, and I, and I thought that um, it was pretty insightful, saying that this incident and the reaction to it, because a lot of Democrats have come out, almost all of the candidates for uh, that are running now for president have come out and said Northam's got to resign. Um, Joe Biden said he's got to go. Terry McAuliffe, the former governor, said he's got to go. Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this guy doesn't really have any allies, so I don't know what he's holding on to. But their reaction was pretty swift. But the Washington Post brought up that this could possibly be um, – almost like a racial awakening much needed in this country, similar to the way the Me Too movement came out of Donald Trump and the Harvey Weinstein incidents. Like, are mm-hmm. we seeing now a, a quote, like a Me Too movement on race in this country as a result I of this? I don't know, but we, it needs to be something. Something needs to be done because I'm tired of people listening, letting code, code words slip. You know, this stuff is deadly. I mean, words matter. And people use words and pictures and people get upset by it. There has been such an agitation more so over the last two years than I've seen in a long time. And it needs to stop because someone we've already seen a life. Lost. We've seen a life lost, you know, in Charlottesville. Um, you know, I think back about, you know, Mother Emanuel. I think about these things and people just kind of let it go. But you know what? It can't. You got to root it out, even if it's the president. You got to call it out. You know, with both sides. You know, good people on both sides in Charlottesville. Yeah. That was wrong. Sure, s whole nation. That's wrong. You're the moral leader. You're supposed to set the tone, and the tone is set. You've got people. You know, you got this viral standoff with this Native American and and these young children whose lives are being shaped by this hate, and and and, and then you also and, and let's let's even go deeper. Those black. Hebrew Israelites were wrong as the day is long, and they incited that 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 hate that day, and it just kept growing and growing. We've got to we have got to figure out how to stop it. People need to feel like each one matters and, and respect other people. Respect is gone. Um, cultural awareness is gone. People don't want to learn about other other, other civilizations, and this during Black History Month. Um, you know, we need to talk. We need to talk. We need to have this conversation constantly. Yes. And it makes me angry when it just happens when there's a crescendo moment. Right. Because, you know, we're, we're knee jerky. We could have prevented it if we started talking a long time ago and explaining and calling it out for wrong and standing against it, you know, when it happened. Instead, you know, before, instead of letting it go like, oh, that's just them. No, it's not just them. Mm-hmm. They're tentacles to this stuff. 
Well, I think because we have such a lack of moral leadership coming from the White House these days that it's up to uh, it's up to everyday people to start taking a stand against these things and holding our leaders accountable when they don't, because we're not going to get that moral leadership as long as Donald Trump is in in the White House. And I think the responsibility falls on on everybody else to do their part. Um, Speaking of doing their part. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the state of journalism, since this is what you have done and you have really been in the thick of it um, for four presidencies. And the Washington Post during the Super Bowl ran a 60 second ad basically as a tribute to what journalists do in, in when trying to get the facts and report them that they put their lives on the line to bring information to the American people. And the Washington Post This has been on their masthead for almost two years now since Donald Trump came in and has been attacking the press, that democracy dies in darkness. Um, What are your thoughts about that as someone who's been in the thick of this and who has covered different presidencies? And, you know, how does this covering this president compare to others? And now has death threats because she just asked questions to get to the truth and the bottom of the matter. Um, I think the Washington Post should be lauded for this. I mean, it's wonderful. Um, You know, People don't realize that when they try to shut us up, call us fake, whatever, it's about the American public because you don't get the information. You know, people tune in because they want to watch. I mean, look, think about this. There's several uh, instances recently that I can I can cite where great journalism, you know, um, really was what people were craving, and they were looking for it. And they got it. Think about um, Saturday. We were there when the governor of Virginia. Uh, wanted to give his little statement. We questioned him. And because we questioned him, you found out a little bit more, you know, about what he was thinking and what he was saying and the fact that he wasn't going to resign. And I think about Brett Kavanaugh, those hearings. I think about Suzanne Malvo. If she wasn't in that hallway and had the had the foresight to see those women and run behind them who jumped on the elevator within um, Senator, With Senator Flake. Flake. Yep. You know, we saw in real time the 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 the, the, the mind altering shift that went from that elevator into that hearing where he his spirit you could clearly see his spirit was vexed. Yeah. And he walked from one end of of, of the, the, the bench to the other and, and, and pulled Chris Coons, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware up on the opposite side of the aisle and said, Look, we've got an issue here. And he had to deal with his conscience. We saw this in real time. That's what journalism is about. Yep. And people need to stop this. This, oh my God, I hate them. And, Jen, and a big shout out, out to Suzanne Malvo, our a CNN yes, colleague. Yes, She's fabulous. Yes. That was, that yes, was a, one is. of the highlights of her very long and storied career as well as a reporter. Yes, and yes, she was very yes. proud of that moment. I talked to her at the Radio and TV Awards in uh, mm-hmm. December or November. And we talked about that. And she just was like, you know that was a really important moment for her in her career. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes, yeah, and sometimes we have to shout our own people out because if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. That's right. I shouted it out on the view because people tell me, well, journalists are this and journalists. I said, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. We might get some things wrong, but let me tell you when we get it right. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most, we get it right most of the time, but you have people in, in high positions who get angry because we tell the truth that they don't want out. Okay, Mm -hmm. or, you know, because there are investigations or they're not necessarily portrayed in a good light. Well, you know what? You know, unfortunately, 
when you when you investigate, when you, you talk to people, you're going to get, if you listen to real credible sources, you're going to get all sides of the spectrum. Everything isn't always butterflies and flowers and skipping through the field. It is real truth and hard fact that you may not want to swallow. It sometimes is larger than that horse pill. <laughs> you just got to dissolve it and just take it bit by bit. Let me but ask now you. We are, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, but now was... we're in jeopardy because our lives are in jeopardy. We are, our, our career, our craft is in jeopardy because people don't like what we say and they want to craft their own narrative. And that's the problem. People need to see that. And it's irresponsible, the president of the United States, to continually repeat that the press is the enemy of the people, which has created this mm. hostile environment. Um, and I know uh, April and I were uh, having dinner in L.A. We were both out there for a conference. And April mm-hmm. actually travels with personal security. I saw it. I witnessed it myself. And that is a damn shame, in my opinion, that just because you're a journalist who asks tough questions, trying to get the truth and report on the facts, that you have to travel with personal security uh, i mean i they've received... made it they've called me out they made me a target and then yeah. and then when, at that conference you know some people were trying to come after me and then when they saw the security they backed down you know and it's 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 it's, it's a sin and a shame it's not about i don't like the president it's not about i don't i don't like barack obama it's not about i don't like donald trump it's about i'm asking questions you know, and I mean, I have and that's, a right and to that's ask. not that's normal, my freedom. right? This is not normal, not normal. What's going gone on? So no. compared to uh, President Obama, President, yes, yes, um, mm-hmm. yeah. People need to understand that what's happening today and the attacks on the press is that none of this is normal. And you're right; it's very Nixonian. That's the last time that we heard the phrase "enemy of the people." That's when mm-hmm. Nixon was being um, held to account for Watergate, and he was. Whew, Nixon was. A bastard. Yeah, I know Mm -hmm. exactly. At least he even had enough sense to resign when he needed to. Um, Something about being, you know, the lack of diversity in newsrooms is something that has come up in in, in the past, and even more so under this administration, just because of the, you know, just how awful Donald Trump is when it comes to issues of race and things. Um, The the idea of that we need more diversity. I know that you mentioned in your book uh, Under Fire, which we're going to talk about in a second, that it was actually George W. Bush who said to you that he would Mm -hmm. like to see more diversity in the press briefing room, you know, in these these organizations because of the perspective it, it brings to the conversation and oftentimes topics of importance um, mm-hmm. to minority communities are not brought up unless you have people who are in the communities and understand those things. Talk a little bit about that. He sure did. That was in my first book, The Presidency in Black and White, my up-close view of four presidents and race in America. Um, and see, I've written two books prior to this one. Right, that's right. This, um, so the yeah, new one's number three. <laughs> yeah, this is number three, three and five years. Whew. So, um, Basically, the president was like, I'm not pandering to you. And he was very, he was someone, and we didn't get a chance to see it, but I saw it. He was someone who really talked to me and it had a had an eye out on issues of race. It didn't look like it, particularly when Katrina happened. But, you know, we talked about Africa, and he even was very supportive of Barack Obama. Yeah. You know, um, it was his heart. He understood that race was a heart issue. And and he agonized that, over his response to Katrina, by the way. So yeah, there's a lot of people died. in the black community that mm-hmm. still look at George W. Bush kind of vilified him. And he mm-hmm. really, really agonized over that response. It was never he out of malice. Died. It was just it yeah. was not, you know, he was advised incorrectly. They they just didn't. There were a lot of factors that went into that. But it was certainly yeah. not um, 
uh, ambivalence or disregard or antipathy. It was none of those things toward the black community that caused th- that reaction. And he, to exactly. this, I mean, to this day, he still agonizes over it. it was the biggest, really besides, besides the Iraq war, it was like, I think he said that it was like the biggest regret of his presidency. Yeah, he does. And, and remember that, that I, you, we will never forget Kanye West saying George Bush oh. doesn't like black people. And now that crushed him. This this president. president is his dad is like his dad, right? Um, it is so interesting. But no, George W. Bush, um, he is this 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 guy who leads by his heart, but mm-hmm. you just didn't see it. It's true. And a lot of and people he made, Yeah, yeah. And he really um, wanted to see a different room because he felt like it was just one group of people who were just moving on one story. He understood that there were issues in Hispanic America, in Black America, in all types of different streets, lanes, valleys, and avenues that weren't coming to the White House. And unfortunately, I was one of the very few people in that room asking about issues pertaining to the community, as well as other issues. But I'm going to tell you something, Sarah, and, and, and someone, Dwayne Wickham, who is now the, the dean of uh, the School of Global Journalism at Morgan State University, he used to be a columnist at USA Today. And your alma mater. And my alma mater, yes, Morgan <laughs> State University, and he's a dear friend, but he made me aware of something, and I didn't know this. The Kerner Report, the Kerner Commission Report, is now, I believe, 51 years old. And one of the responses to one of the suggestions um, by the Kerner Commission that was born out of the riots in Newark and all sorts of places, uh, like in 64, so what, one of the responses was that um, that they, there should be news media that reflects the community, mm-hmm. especially in, in high places, and in, in, in ask questions about the community. That was one of the things in the Carter Commission report, and I didn't realize that. I'm like, wow, I've been responding to the Carter Commission report for the last 22 years. Hmm. That's right. But there needs to be more. Right. There needs to be more because we are not a monolith. I mean, America is not a monolith. We have so many different issues. You know, and it's not all about Russia. It's not all about about North Korea. You know, it's 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 not all about Northam. It's about there's so many different things, you know, on the table, and so many issues are swept under the table because they they're not brought to the seat of power. You understand what I'm saying? So yeah. they need to be in front of the decision makers. And as one of my uh, historical heroines, Ida B. Wells, said, yeah. in order to right the wrongs, you you have to shine the light of truth upon them. And I think that's what what people like you and other journalists who are on the front lines of this do every single day. And and we are Thanks. so appreciative of that, which is Shed light um, and dark spaces. That's right. And um, that's mm-hmm. that's basically the theme of your of your book under fire, which is out now under fire reporting from the front lines of the Trump White House. Um there is there's a there's a couple of interesting parts of your book, but I think um, for the just because we're running out of time and I want to make sure we talk a little bit about it. Um, you talk about what inspired you to write this book at this point with this administration. Why did you decide you needed to write it now? I mean, we're only a year and a half into the or a year into the Trump administration and already you felt under fire. So what inspired you to write the book? Oh, now? I was under fire during the campaign. Mm-hmm. And if you read the book, you'll understand. I bring you into what happened from the very beginning to now. But here is here's the reason why I wrote the book. I witnessed Hillary Clinton allow them to take her narrative and make her crooked Hillary. Mm-hmm. And I refused to allow them to smear me. My parents, that my late parents, sacrificed for me to be 
who I am and what I am. My community has pushed me and cheered me on. And I have to tell my truth and the truth as to what's going on. And because they will try to tear you down. They, they don't like the press. And they wanted to run me out. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Let me, let me have a megaphone and tell what's going on. And people are listening. And who was, um, I mean, I know who one of who one of the main people trying to run you out was <clears throat> Amarosa. Um, <laughs> you said that. And where is she now, huh? Right, <laughs> right. Now, you dedicate a, a good portion of, of uh, one of the chapters in your book to Amarosa. Um, I mean, people don't know. One chapter out of how many chapters? I know, but no, I know. I do that but you do because people understand. Right, your right. Head. Right, yeah. no, and you guys were, and a lot of people may not know this, but you were actually friends with Amarosa at one point, and you were friendly with her, and then that relationship went south really, really badly. Um, I'm, I don't want to give we it all away. very close. Yeah, we but just tell close. a little bit about it. I mean, you got to read the book to hear all of it, but just tell a little bit about uh, about what happened with Amarosa. Because it's fascinating. <laughs> You look. You want to. You want to get into the ratchetness. Um, I'm ratchet adjacent. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said a little bit. If you want to, you want to all the ratchetness. You got to read the book. <laughs> no, we were friends. And and, and uh, long story short, we met during the Clinton years. She did work in the Clinton administration, but she wasn't a high ranking staffer. She was just a low level, <laughs> a right. low level staffer. But she made Donald Trump believe she was this mover and shaker. And so she came back, and but but in order for her to to show her loyalty to them, and because they didn't trust her, they didn't like her, they didn't believe her, so she wanted to throw somebody who's been there forever, who had respect, under the bus, to show them that she was in their camp, someone close to her, her friend. That was so you, her alleged friend. Yeah, that was me. But guess what? It didn't work. Cleveland didn't realize what Baltimore was about. So uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we got oh, oh boy, people are that, that is too funny. That is so funny because I always say that about being from Jersey. I'm like, you know, you don't want to mess with a Jersey girl, okay? Because it's a, let me tell you something about Baltimore. Let me tell you what comes out of Baltimore. <laughs> Jada Pinkett's from Baltimore. Jada Pinkett Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith is from Baltimore. Um, Elijah Cummings um, of Oversight and Government Government Reform, Baltimore. And Nancy to the D'Alessandro to the Pelosi is from Baltimore. That's her right. father and her brother were both mayors of Baltimore. Baltimore is about survival and keeping it real. Um, and that's what it is. We, we, we've come too far to turn back now. And I'm not going to let anybody stand in my way for something frivolous so you can status climb on my back. I don't think so. Uh, hey, I, uh, I hear you. And I think that it's important, note, right? It's on. It's important. On that note, one last thing: what is your five. what is your advice to young uh, journalists of color who are coming up in the business in this day and age in this climate? What is your advice to them as a, as a veteran truth fighter out there um, on the front lines? I didn't sign up to be a truth fighter. Um, I I studied for this, but what I studied, how I studied years ago, is so different from what it is today. Uh, what I would recommend is for the students to, or, or anyone, um, know every platform there is in broadcasting, be it social media, be it TV, be it radio, be it print. You are going to be called upon to do everything. Be the best there is. Um, and, and don't go by your, your inclination. Make sure it's factual. Because we are now in a climate that we are under attack. And you got to have a stomach for it. There's no gray area. It's black or white. Either you want it or you don't. So um, 
it's a different day, but I wish them the best. Um, but, you know, by the time my children, who are 11 and 16, um, are adults, the delivery system for news is even going to be much different from what it is today. Mm-hmm. So just be, be able to conform, you know, be a chameleon, you know, in this business. You can be able to do anything and everything, but be a smart, be well-read and know your stuff. That's right. Never over-research a topic. That's right. That's right. Well, April Ryan, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy out there giving them hell at the White House. Um, make sure you check <laughs> out her book. My job. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, make sure you get her book. Check it out. Under Fire, reporting from the front lines of the Trump White House. April, thank you so much. Tara, stay- I so appreciate you. Thank and you. And stay safe, please. I will. You too. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Always a pleasure to talk to April. That was, um, she's great. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me right, the Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, starting January 23rd, 10, 9 central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor, who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head, and the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. Get hooked on Pure. Series premiere Wednesday, January 23rd, 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. Instead of doing a feel-good story like I normally do for Black History Month, I'm going to highlight um, black history heroes and heroines and talk a little bit about their contribution every week. So this week, um, the person that I'm going to give tribute to is Ida B. Wells. You heard me mention her during the conversation with April. Now, Ida B. Wells is a badass. And you'll hear me use that term sometimes when I talk about women, but she was really fierce and fearless And she was born in 1862 as a slave in Mississippi. And she ended up becoming one of the most iconic American journalists, abolitionists, and feminists who led a campaign against anti-lynching in this country, especially during the 1890s. And she also went on to um, be an original founder of the NAACP. But what Ida B. Wells went through in her crusade against lynching was pretty remarkable. And her fight as a journalist to bring truth to this, to bring light to what was going on with the the terrorism that these lynch mobs in the South were, were wreaking on black communities, it was really awful. And she was with Rosa Parks before Rosa Parks. A lot of people don't know this, but she bought a first class ticket to sit on a to, to, to take a train ride and was told she could not sit in the first class section of that train and was forcibly removed because she said, I'm not moving. This was in the 1880s. So you didn't do that. 
Now, this is after the after the proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation. No, right? Blacks are supposed to be free. Well, yeah, not in the Jim Crow South. And it took several men to remove her from this train. And she even bit one of them and was like, you're going to have to literally throw me off the train. And they did. She sued the railroad company. And initially she won. But then it was appealed and she lost an appeal and ended up having to pay a fine. And she said, you know what? That's okay. I'd rather do that and maintain my dignity. And that kind of got her into thinking, I need to become a journalist so that I can start shining a light on what's going on. And she said something that is resonated with me. And I say this often in my speeches and uh, I'll refer back to this. She said, the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. And that's exactly what she did over the course of her life. Whether it was fighting for women's rights to vote in the suffrage movement, whether it was fighting against anti, uh, against lynching and in becoming a founder of the NAACP. I mean, in her, over the course of her life, she paid uh, amazing, um, unbelievable personal prices along the way. When she lived in Tennessee in Memphis, that's really where she, a friend of hers was lynched and that's what gave her the incentive to take that on. Um, her, her, um, newspaper that she founded was firebombed by a white mob. Thankfully, she was not there. She was in New York City at the time. She finally had to escape the South and realize that it was not safe for her to live there. So she moved to Chicago where she was able to, to write and to um, continue her activism safely. But she was fierce and fearless and she stood up no matter what. And you know, she said, um, she's also said something that I, I thought was pretty, pretty intense. You know, she talked about not, no, not only, you know, a seat once denied is no longer just a seat, which was true, which is what her active protest did on that train. But she also made, um, said something that was very profound. Something that I, that I, I get as someone who stands up when it's not convenient and sometimes you pay a price for it. But she said, I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or rat in a trap. Good for you, Ida B. Wells. She is someone to be admired and someone who I admire. And that's a little, little piece of black history. So check out Ida B. Wells. So that's it for this week of Honestly Speaking. Thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to follow me on social media at honestly underscore Tara or at Tara Setmayer on Twitter or at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. I like to hear from you. So send me your thoughts, send me your comments, and I will be sure to respond if I see it. So stay tuned. I'll see you next week. Mm